Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, welcome to the show this week, and thanks for coming around and inviting me into your home to chat with you and answer questions. Uh, we've got some pretty interesting ones this week, and uh, we will get to them in just a moment. I wanted to first plug the podcast for this week. If you guys have not seen it, it is all about the kerfuffle that happened in Clearwater this last week. We talked about it a little bit in the Critical Conversation show, which I hope you guys will also check out because in our live call-in show this week, uh, which we just did last night, we also uh, made some predictions. I, I'm, not a, I'm not one to do predictions, but this week I did uh, say a few things about where I thought things might be going with cults in general here in the United States, perhaps in the world, as COVID-19 restrictions are being loosened and as the vaccinations are becoming more you know, propagated. I mean, a third of the country is vaccinated now. And I'm thinking that we're going to see a real uh, speed up here of uh, regulations being, you know, um, sort of relaxed and, and people getting back to normal. We're, we're all so desperate to. And I really want to caution to please be cautious. Get your vaccinations, please. Um, the eligibility lists and all that, you can find that state by state, I'm sure, through websites and Department of Health and stuff like that. Anyway, I'm just cautioning and, and, and asking, please do get vaccinated. It really does matter. It does make a difference if you are vaccinated or not. And, um, you know, and there's no microchips and there's and Bill Gates is not trying to surveil you through, you know, 5G towers or any other nonsense. And I'm sure nobody who believes that crap actually watches my show. But it's just, geez, man, you know, there's the links that people will go to to avoid um, just doing the right thing, you know, just doing the sensible, normal, usual right thing. We got rid of polio. We have reduced, you know, so many diseases almost to non-existence through vaccination. It works. It's a good thing. And, you know, and, and just stop being a jerk about it. Just go get vaccinated. I can't wait. Personally, we're, we're, uh, just got into the eligible, uh, zone ourselves here in Colorado. M uh, Melissa and I did. And we are, um, you know, working very hard to try to get an appointment to to get vaccinated. So anyway, just wanted to put that plug out there because it's really important to me that you guys live. <laughs> and it's really important to me that you guys thrive and survive. And uh, and I think that, you know, we've all learned in this last year that we need each other and we need to trust some science and we need to, um, you know, just kind of do the sensible, common, usual stuff and we'll get We'll finish this thing in the most unspectacular, least dangerous way possible. <laughs> let's try that for a change. <laughs> okay, guys, let's get on with your questions. Kevin Zay, has the bite model ever been applied to the Freemasons? In your opinion, where do they fall on the scale as far as being a cult or a very highly controlled group? Hey, Kevin, thank you for this question. The Freemasons are probably one of the most conspired about, rumored about, misunderstood, grossly lied about organizations in history. Um, we do love our conspiracies, and in history, there have been tons and tons of them related to or revolving around the Freemasons. And um, this is, of course, very connected with, it uh, goes all the way back to, you know, the people who were figuring things out, building things, you know, math, you know, all this crazy stuff. Um, and this developed into secret societies with ideologies, political affiliations, uh, philo you know, philosophical ideas, 
um, transcendence. I mean, you, you can you can find evidence of little groups or 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 big groups through history that get involved in this stuff and want to talk about it. They find that it's not popular with the current political tides or religious, um, you know, influences in their society. They might not have been as free to discuss things or meet together or even, you know, even assemble to discuss matters that the church might have found heretical or which the local government or um, local administrators might have found threatening to their power. And so, you know, they had to they had to form up in these little secret groups. And then you get conspiracies about those groups. And what are they really up to? What's going on? Right. Well, you know, you could imagine about 20 different reasons why from jealousy to power to threat to, you know, any other number of reasons, simple rabble rousing why people would make up stories about secret societies or just make up, you know, ideas about why they exist and what they're up to. And, um, and of course, these groups can change and evolve and, and, uh, and die off over the years as we see, you know, varying shades and flavors of this stuff occur, right? And I'm talking very broadly about this because I want to sort of give an appreciation for, you know, time and tide and history and how... There is no such thing as a static group, a group of people that is that maintain a core set of beliefs forever. That just doesn't happen. Um, you know, a group is a different group today than they were a year ago, a year before that, 50 years before that. Radically different in some ways. And, um, and we have to appreciate that because this there is no... Illuminati or secret core of people who have been secretly plotting things generationally, like through the generations from father to son or passing down the lineage or whatever. It's just such nonsense. You know, if you look around and watch how people act, they don't act that way. No one does, right? So how do you, you know, how is this supposed to work? It's just a big fantasy. It's a story. It's a narrative. Uh, the whole Illuminati conspiracy Freemason crap, you know, I'm just kind of trying to shed, you know, throw a little bit of water on all this nonsense. Now, that all being said, right, I've actually met people who claim to be Freemasons and they have informed me in no uncertain terms that um, that there is nothing really weird or culty about it. It's just a bunch of guys getting together and chatting or trying to help each other out or trying to build each other up or support one another. And that's and there are also charitable organizations and, and groups affiliated with this. We see this with the Shriners, for example, and the children's hospitals. So maybe that's a front. You know, maybe there is some secret cabal at the heart of the whole thing. But we don't really see any evidence of that. And so you can say or propagate any number of rumors or conspiracy theories, and, and they have. And there have been debunking done of this. Uh, for example, I think there's something called the Taxel or Leo Taxel papers or something. Uh, there was I didn't look you know deeply into this, but apparently this was rather seminal <laughs> debunking of some uh, deep conspiracy theory connected with the Illuminati and and the Freemasons. Um, or sorry, just the Freemasons. I don't know about the Illuminati connection on that one. Anyway, um, the conversations I've had with actual people really claiming to be Freemasons indicated to me that there isn't any real cultic activity going on there, but there is secrecy connected with it. There is a desire for privacy. 
And there really isn't anything inherently wrong with a desire for privacy. Every family wants privacy. Every company, every group has, you know, the idea that we have, you know, boundaries. We have, you know, the ability to draw those. And that's pretty much what's going on with the Freemasons as far as I can tell. I did look through the literature, um, you know, just just a little bit. I didn't go deep, deep diving on this, uh, you know, on like an international level. But I couldn't find evidence on Google Scholar or in the library databases that I looked at um, that a byte model has ever actually been uh, analyzed um, against the Freemasons. There has been a lot of literature about the Freemasons, uh, academic literature, studies, you know, commentary on the conspiracies, the origins of the conspiracies, the history of the group, uh, some of its practices even. You can find academic literature on on some aspects of this. Um, it's well, well written about, and and all across the spectrum. It's written about from the deep conspiracy angle all the way to the look. There's nothing. There's please move on. There's no situation here. But I haven't seen a bite model analysis done of it, and I suspect that if you were to do one, you would have to actually. Um, get pretty specific about which group of Freemasons you're talking about and at what time period. Um, because, like I said, these groups evolve and change over time and over geography. And you'll find the Freemasons in Britain, for example, might be a little different than the Freemasons in the United States. And perhaps in the United States, you'll find different chapters of this with their own local variations. I'd be very surprised if you didn't. But I can't speak intelligently about those variations or differences because I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the topic. So that's I, I know this is a bit of a broad shoot in answering your question, but I didn't want to just ignore it or, or, or say I didn't know anything because, you know, I know some things about it. Um, but I am not at all concerned about the Freemasons as a destructive cult or as some authoritarian group that is, you know, manipulating and controlling its members. The... Um, the number one thing that gives me that sort of, I kind of went, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to get into this any more than, than this, is when I had the people who have talked to me about it and, you know, in a real live conversation as well as reading and studying on it, that one of the things about these high control destructive groups is that you can't leave. It's not, they're not down with you just stepping up and stepping out. Uh, at all. There, there's retention techniques. There's a lot of pressure applied to keep you on board. And there is none of that in the Freemasons. They, they, you know, they'll let you in. You have to kind of push to get in. I think you have to be invited through one of their members. So you have to, you know, be, already know somebody who knows somebody kind of thing. And, um, but you can leave anytime and there's no consequences. They're not going to stalk you. They're not going to follow you around. They're not going to you know, uh, make your life difficult. And that is really one of the biggest checkboxes of, of whether we're dealing with a, a destructive group or not is, you know, what happens if you try to leave? And uh, of course, you know, if you try to leave the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology or Nexium or something, well, they're going to come after you. They're going to they're gonna want to retain you. They don't want to lose you. They're desperate to hold on to you. And they're also desperate to keep you quiet about what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know. They don't want you blabbing around about Scientology's inner circle practices or abuses or any of that. And um, we don't see any evidence of that with the Freemasons. You know, I was an ex-Freemason and they abused me. You know, we don't, we don't see that. We don't see any indication of that. And there is no such thing as a group that is so hardcore and so good at what they do and so secure 
that there isn't eventually going to be a whistleblower. There, there, there's always whistleblowers coming out and speaking up about this stuff. People are just, you know, they, they, they feel very passionately about that justice factor. And when they've been done wrong, you know, they will move mountains to co- try to correct that wrong. And, um, and we don't see that with the Freemasons. At least I couldn't find a whole lot of evidence of it. Uh, so that's my take on it. I know some people out there are going to think I've had the blinders pulled over me. I'm just, you know, just repeating their party lines, etc. And, you know, okay. If you want to think that about me, go right ahead. I, I think you'll, you know, I'm not simple Simon that way. Um, but whatever. That's my, that's my current take on it. And um, if I receive any information to make me think otherwise, you guys will be the first to know. Michael Yoder. I recently heard Mike Rinder with John Atack talk about an auditing process called Op Pro by Dupe. When I looked it up, it had to do with the RPF, and the description was pretty bleak, dragging an unconscious person around to do TRs. Did you have to do this routine, and can you tell us more about it and your experience? Hey, Michael, thank you for this. Op Pro by Dupe is short for, an abbreviation for, Opening Procedure by duplication. And it is an auditing process that L. Ron Hubbard developed back in like 1954 or 55 or something. And I actually went to the scriptures, as I am wont to do, and I pulled up um, the original professional auditor's bulletin, uh, number 48, dated 18 March 1955, titled Opening Procedure by Duplication. Um, now, it was also numbered process or routine uh, R217. Okay, so R actually stands for route, and that's from a book called The Creation of Human Ability, which Hubbard wrote as a book of processes and uh, providing two routes by which a person might exteriorize, go out of their body and, and know it. That's what exteriorization is in Scientology, is when you're having an out-of-body experience where you are aware of perceptions and, and sights and sounds or, or, or just a feeling or an awareness that you are not in your body. And you are not your body. That's the idea. That's what they want you to, to get. And these OBEs, out-of-body experiences, uh, are called in Scientology exteriorization. So um, they're, they're real big on exteriorization, and Opro by Dupe was a process with an intended to exteriorize a person. I'd intended to do other things, too, but that was one of the uh, sort of sub-goals of the process. There are lots of easier ways to exteriorize somebody in Scientology. I've gone over them. I think even recently I mentioned the whole three, you know, be three feet back of your head uh, you know, single command, the magic words, right? Be, be three feet back of your head, or... Or try not to be three feet back of your head, right? And, and these would work, quote unquote, on some people. You know, you would say these words to them in an auditing session and they'd be like, oh my God, I'm, I am three feet back of my head. Wow, I can see the room. You know, this is a classic and fairly strong case, actually, of, uh, of some disassociation. You know, this is not a good thing. It's not healthy to be doing this to yourself psychologically. Uh, you, you, your body is you, 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 you know, so this idea you're going to step out of your body is just, anyway, it's not good. It's not healthy. And, um, and yet this is a goal. It's a big, huge goal in Scientology. And 
Okay, now the 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 um, there are other purposes or uses. What I'm telling you is sort of the PR of what Hubbard said this thing is for. But he also admitted to, or also said in the bulletins and stuff here, that opening procedure by duplication is a process that is supposed to condition a person to, or get a person used to, duplicative commands repetitive commands, right? This is a kind of processing or auditing that is done in, in Scientology. And there are lots and lots of these duplicative or repetitive commands where you're given the same command or the same question to answer over and over and over again. And this puts you into a trance state and it doesn't even take that long to happen. Um, and once you're in that trance state, then you're in this sort of semi-hypnotic daze and you are um, semi-conscious and you go in and out of, you know, feeling like you're sleeping. Hubbard called it boil off. He explained it as the process of, of, of past incidents of unconsciousness and pain kind of coming up, floating up to the surface and, and hitting you in the head and you sort of doze off and all this. And it's supposed to be, you know, at varying times in Scientology's history, it's been good for you, not so good for you, you know, ignore it, whatever. Um, Hubbard's had different directions about this kind of unconsciousness that can hit strike a person in auditing. But back in 55, this was a desired result. We wanted people to go through this. And now in auditing, it's pretty much the same thing. This, this, this unconscious state you can go in or this trance state is a desired, it's a feature. It's what you're supposed to have happen to you when you're in auditing. And it's supposed to indicate, according to Hubbard, like I said, that you are running off or getting rid of or, or releasing past uh, unconsciousnesses, hypnotized incidents, efforts of, you know, effort, that kind of thing, heavy emotion, pain, you know, all this stuff is supposedly flying off of you. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. You're really just in this, in this sort of trance state. Um, now, when I describe this process to you, you're going to be like, oh my God, it's, it's a little weird. Um, what you do is it's also opening procedure by duplication is also called in in the UK, he says here in Great Britain, where auditors have used um, for the there's two objects in the process that you use. And classically, these two objects are a book and a bottle, like a bottle, just glass bottle, you know, Coke bottle or whatever, a wine bottle, even, you know, whatever. You got a bottle on one side and you got a book, any book, you know, normal lightweight book. You don't want a tome or something. And you put these on different desks or different uh, little little uh, shelves or something. They're placed, um, okay, for example, a book, for instance, is placed in one part of a room and a bottle is placed in another part of a room far enough apart so that the pre-clear, the person doing the auditing, the pre-clear will have to walk between them. This is not a sitting down process. You're standing the whole time this is going on. The auditor, the person administering the process, he gets to sit down, but you have to walk. And what you do is the auditor then sends him back and forth from one to the other, from the book to the bottle, bottle to the book, using for each item a stereotyped series of questions, which actually themselves never vary. Okay, I'm reading to you from the scriptures here. Because these questions never vary, the auditor is apt to forget that he must maintain a two-way communication with the preclear. In other words, if the preclear in, in doing this process appears to be going out of it or has a question or is concerned or has some complaint, 
the auditor is supposed to acknowledge him, not just ignore it. And there are some auditing processes where the auditor ignores everything the preclear says or does except for compliance with the auditor's commands. This is not one of those processes. The auditor is supposed to maintain communication with the preclear, but the communication is not the important part of the process. Doing the steps are the important part of the process. And so basically the way the commands go, and let me see if I can just um, find the list of commands here. Um, let's see. I've got it right here. Okay, go over to the book. Okay, so here's the auditor. He tells the preclear what they're going to do. Get, you know, you get some idea of what's going to happen, what the goal of the of the session is, and then they start the process. Okay, and the way the process goes is the auditor tells the preclear to do the following things in order over and over and over again. Go over to the book. Look at it. Pick it up. What is its color? What is its temperature? What is its weight? Put it down in the same place. Go over to the bottle. Look at it. Pick it up. What is its color? What is its temperature? What is its weight? Put it down in the same place. Go over to the book, right? And this goes back and forth. Go over to the book, pick it, you know, look at it, pick it up. Uh, what was it? Color, temperature, and weight. Put it back in the same place. And they continue. This goes on for hours and hours, minimum 25 hours to do this process. And it's not in one shot. Hubbard does say, when I was going through this, the, the, the bulletins here on how to run this, that you don't run it for just 20 minutes at a shot or something. You're intended to run this process for hours at a shot. Minimum, you'd really want to go for like two, two and a half hours in a, in a stretch Wrap it up, you know, you get to a flat point, a point where you're like, okay, well, I'm not done yet, but I feel so-so or feel okay, you know, and, you know, he's not sitting there like falling over himself. Okay, we're done now, right? You don't end off a process when the preclear is falling asleep, unconscious, you know, laying on the floor. You're going to get him to a point where he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally bored with this or I hate this or I don't want to do this, but I'm, you know, I'm at a good spot or something, right? I'm at a flat spot. Let him go home. Come back the next day. Or maybe he even has some kind of minor epiphany or realization or what they call a cognition where he, oh, wow, I, you know, I kind of like books. I think I need to read more books. You know, his affinity goes up for books, right? Um, Got to say something positive to get the hell out of the session, right? Because believe me, pre-clears who do this process and auditors who have to deliver it hate it. It is the most redundant, repetitive, boring nonsense Oh, it's just, it, it just feels, it feels like torture after a while. Truly, it does. And Hubbard says it's supposed to. You're supposed to go through that. You're supposed to run it out. And Hubbard said that one of the biggest complaints about the process when he was first writing about it is people complained that they felt like they were being hypnotized. And Hubbard's rejoinder to that was, no, we are running out hypnosis and at that point where you're absolutely convinced that what's going on is hypnosis and you're being hypnotized here, right past that point, you just keep going and you're going to release all that hypnotism from the past and you're going to feel great. <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. 
This is opening procedure by duplication. It has been um, used on the RPF, but it is not a specific RPF thing. Just to address that in your question, um, Michael, because this was developed in 1955, you know, almost two decades before the RPF was even a, a, an idea in Hubbard's brain. So um, opening procedure by duplication has been used to torture Scientologists for almost as long as Scientology has been around. And it is a real torture fest delivering it and doing it. I received it. I delivered it. It was awful. Um, and there is a time frame on it, too. They will make you keep running it and running it and running it. Hubbard said over and over again, you want this thing being run for hours. And, of course, the real goal here, now that we've sort of talked about what Hubbard had to say about it and kind of how it's used, it's a part of the objective auditing that is done at the lower end of the bridge. It can be done again at any point and often is. Um what Hubbard's doing with this process is he is is he is conditioning Scientologists to get used to and be willing to be controlled. And he actually even said that in so many words in the in the materials of, of Scientology. Um, they just don't see the nefarious aspect of that, right? Is is you want to get people into an amiable, controllable frame of mind where they're used to doing what you tell them. And if you can convince somebody that that by them but complying with your orders, that you're helping them, that you're, you know, even if they feel resistance and they feel like this is wrong and they don't want to do it. No, this is the right thing for you to do. No pain, no gain. You know, you got to make some sacrifice. We have to, you know, we have to go through the struggle of this, right, in order to, to get to the goodies on the other end. And so people knuckle down and convince themselves that this is what they need to do. But what they're really doing is making themselves more amiable, more open to suggestion and uh, post and pre-hypnotic commands, of course, with the trance states. Um, but also just to used getting used to being controlled. And the principle that that sort of underlies this from Hubbard is that if you are not willing to be controlled, then you'll never, ever be able to control others. Well, there's a certain degree of truth in that, but of course, when you take it, you know, when you dial it up to 11, <laughs> and, you know, then it's all about controlling the Scientologists and they don't get any control. You know, if they try to control the church to do something, you know, the church shows them very quickly that it's not interested in being controlled. Maybe the church needs some op pro by dupe, right? Anyway, so um, that's what the process is. It's pretty gross. It's a, it is a torture fest uh, of a process and nobody enjoys it. Um, I never heard anybody really have anything good to say about it during all the years I was in. It was always just this, oh, God, not that. But it would be used. And Hubbard also, just for your interest, Hubbard also recommended that it be used on the people who are in charge of correcting the organizations and on those who are in charge of establishing the organizations. There's a whole rundown uh, that you're supposed to do on the people who are in charge of establishing the organization, the people in HCO, the Hubbard Communications Office, Division One of the Scientology Organizing Board. Um, Hubbard said that the guy who heads that up um, should be run through this process 
for like 50 hours, 25 hours giving, 25 hours receiving, just to get flat on control and being controlled and, and that kind of thing. You know, and uh, anyway, so Hubbard had a lot of different places. He sort of inserted this in the in the world of Scientology, but that's that's what it is. And if it sounds horrible, it's, that's what it is. <laughs> Silo Simon. Having lived in Utah all of my life, it's hard not to notice how much the Mormon church interferes with lawmaking processes and other aspects of everyday life, especially when a significant population of Utahns are Mormons. I was wondering if there were any interesting or memorable conflicts between the Mormon church and Scientology while you were working on churches in the Western United States. Was there any policy written by LRH or higher-ups on how to approach recruiting in Utah? Was there much focus on members outside of Salt Lake City? Hey, thank you for this question. And actually, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm, I took up this question because I wanted you guys to know there's nothing on this. I never saw or heard anything from Hubbard management of any kind about Mormons or about the LDS church and, and Scientology's relationship to it. There is a church of Scientology in Salt Lake City, and I, there might have been missions of Scientology in other cities in, the, in Utah, but I don't really remember them. Um, I'm sort of thinking maybe Provo, maybe, I'm, I, but I'm not sure about that at all. I could be totally wrong there. I'm positive that they have only, that they've, that their main center uh, in Utah, the, the Scientology, has always been the org in Salt Lake City. And it has been a tiny, podunk, nothing scene always, forever. It's always been that way. So Utah has never been a thriving Scientology city or situation. Um, clearly, this is because Utah is dominated by another cult, which is the, the LDS Church. And the LDS Church is sort of Scientology light. It's, it's not as hardcore. It is not as psychologically manipulative or um, psychologically damaging as Scientology is. But the Mormon, you know, faith and practice and, and some of the stuff they get up to is very culty. It's just, it's just a fact. It's not because I want it to be that way. I actually wish it wasn't. You know, the Mormons are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet, but they engage in some pretty gross stuff. And the control factors with, uh, with Mormonism are pretty, pretty strong. And as you mentioned in your question, you know, they own the state of Utah. And if the Mormon church doesn't want something going on, then they will try to impede and fight it and push back on it. And it can make law enforcement's job and government's job there very, very difficult. They are a very powerful influence there. But Scientology's never really gone head-to-head -head with the Mormons. Not really at all. They just kind of fly under the radar. The presence of Scientology in Salt Lake and in Utah is so minuscule, so unbelievably tiny, that I don't think the Mormons ever thought of Scientology as a threat. And then that's why they've never really had to go head-to-head. And they kind of steal from one another as far as ideas to propagate their religions and stuff. Um, but otherwise, there's not really much interaction. I've never heard of any interfaith or, or union-type activities between the LDS Church and the Church of Scientology. Maybe there have been some you know, minor efforts in that direction within Salt Lake City and the, and the Scientologists there, but I've never heard of it. 
and uh, really just kind of no relationship at all. You know, Scientology has a much tighter relationship with the Nation of Islam than it has with with the LDS uh, Church. I, I, you know, I don't know that they've even had any official dialogue, to be honest. So it's kind of interesting that there's really just kind of no real connection there, at least not that I'm aware of or, or ever knew anything about. So that's what I can tell you about that. Chase Robertson. How does the church, quote unquote, deal with acts of violence slash crime among its members? Are the police slash paramedics ever notified? I find it hard to believe that a person could be in that environment without totally losing it and attacking someone who tried to send them to the RPF or whatever. Okay, well, you know, I will comment here again that um, Chase and everybody else who's listening to this, of course you would find it hard to go along with going to the RPF. You know what the RPF is all about. You know what Scientology is all about. And you have the objective, you know, viewpoint or reference point of this where you can see how ridiculous it is that these guys will ever go along with or, or be... Um, okay with, you know, some of the nonsense that goes on in that group, right? But as I've pointed out many, many times, and we'll continue to say, you know, it's not about what you think, it's about what they think. And, and in that situation, they are convinced that going to the RPF, getting auditing, doing 25 hours of pro by dupe, whatever it is they're doing, uh, is something good for them, that they need this, that this is, uh, it's tough, maybe it's tough love, maybe it's hard, but I need to do this for my own betterment and for the improvement of my life and my family and everything else. So, you know, we all make sacrifices. And the, the, the things that Scientologists do in their lives are what they think are the sacrifices they need to make in order to get one up or, or survive and get through life. Okay, so that being said, um, the church deals with crime in a, in a broad sense. I will answer this question very broadly. Of course, we've addressed this many times before. Um, the, the, the Church of Scientology is primarily interested in the survival of the Church of Scientology. So anything an individual member does is going to be gauged against, is it a threat to the church? How much of a threat to the church is it? Is it containable? Or is this something that we're going to have exposure and liability for? Depending on the answer to those questions is going to depend on how they're going to deal with the Scientologist. If the guy is still a true believer and wants Scientology in his life and wants to contribute to Scientology and believes that Scientology can continue to help him, and he's done something that is cover-upable, and the church wants this person, they, they, they perceive that this person or they, they assess that this person is more of an asset to them than a liability, then they will proceed to, you know, cover it up. And they won't, uh, this Danny Masterson, for example, the church worked di very diligently to cover up sexual assault, actual rape that the guy had engaged in. And they spent years covering this up to the point that they were stalking and harassing as accusers after they couldn't really control them any other way. And, um, and they tried to keep a lid on the whole thing. And they worked very hard behind the scenes to do that. Danny Masterson is a valuable asset to them. He's a celebrity. He's connected with the entire Masterson family. He's got a lot of money. He's an actor. I mean, he's connected. So there were a lot of reasons why Scientology assessed that, that he was uh, an asset to invest in and help out and try to cover the whole thing up. 
Now it's blowing up in their face. We'll see where that goes. With your more run-of-the-mill average Joe Scientologist, right, they'll rake him over the coals for his ethical transgressions or, or moral failings, but they're not going to necessarily be super keen on turning him into the police unless they absolutely have to. And so the, the assessment will be on those questions I mentioned earlier. If this person um, is feeling like they're not loyal to the church, if it looks like they're going to be a problem, if... It looks like this is a crime, uh, you know, like a murder or something. Okay, well, then, you know, when you get into capital crimes, <laughs> um, I, you know, actually, again, I'm going to say that the church is going to run those questions on the issue still. They will still suss out, is this person an asset or a liability, right? And and when you're committing capital crimes, you're probably going to end up on the, on the side of, you know, a liability, and they're going to kick you out. Um, especially if you're kind of new, right? If you're, if you're relatively, if you walk into Scientology on day one and say, look, I'm a, I'm a bank robber, or look, I rob people's houses. That's how I make money. They're going to not be super interested in, in you continuing that lifestyle, you know, uh, for sure. Um, you know, but it's very case by case, actually, you know, cause let's face it. Scientology is itself a criminal organization. It's a money-making scam. So if they perceive, you know, that here's this person who is trying to scam them, like a Kevin Trudeau, for example, they'll kick him right out, right? I mean, Kevin Trudeau was such a criminal, Scientology couldn't even deal with him. So like I said, it depends on the context and the situation and, and, and how cover-upable the whole thing is and all of that. But that's 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 a basic way you could look at it. But you will find exceptions to every rule I just said because of the arbitrary nature of of Scientology and how it's uh, how it's acted over the years. Dusty Bills. Hey Chris, I've thought of a specific follow-up question to my Stanford prison experiment question. What do you think was the thing or things that made it go so wrong? Hey, Dusty, thank you for this. And quite simply, I believe Zimbardo's even like kind of fessed up to this in his book, The Lucifer Effect, which is a amazing book, which I really recommend everybody read. If you want to know how ordinary, regular Joe public people, Sally Sue, Joe Smith, can become monsters, can, can turn, can be made into awful, horrible, murderous people. The formula is in the Lucifer effect. Zimbardo breaks it all down. And he's also, um, anyway, I, you know, I don't get paid to promote this crap. It's just, this is a really good book. I read it recently as part of my studies and I was very impressed by it. Now, Zimbardo talks about the Stanford prison experiment in the book in some detail, and he does quite an analysis of it. And, and he talks about the fact that he got carried away. Um, the, you know, the, everybody connected with the whole thing did. I mean, they thought this was going to go on for a couple of weeks. They had no idea that people were going to, that the, 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 the people involved in the experiment uh, were going to take on these roles and dive into this stuff so heavily and so quickly. And that was the thing that was so surprising. And it was so like what? It was so surprising, shocking, on like what? What is going on here? And they were reviewing the footage every day and watching what was going on. 
And it was just like, holy crap, you know, this is, it was almost like popcorn. I was like, oh my God, I can't take my eyes off this. And these were people, Zimbardo and his assistants and other people working on this, they really should have had a more objective point of view, right? But they just got too caught up in the circumstances and the, and the fantasticness of what was going on. And uh, it was Zimbardo's girlfriend at the time, and I think she was um, a, an assistant of his, who, who had to call him on the carpet and go, hey, man, this is, this is off the rails. This is really going in a really bad direction. You need to stop this. And this was back in a time in the early 1970s when moral and ethical boards did not exist, when there was not ethical oversight. And so there was, you know, there was, or there was not anywhere near as much as there is now. I mean, I don't know if there was nothing, but there was certainly not what there is now. And so, um, so you could design and conduct psychological or sociological experiments that would traumatize people. And, and, and that happened. And um, it is a very controversial thing these days as to, you know, how far can you go? And you have to get ethics approval if you're going to do conduct, you know, um, uh, experimentation or research through a university. And the Stanford Prison Experiment was done at Stanford. It was through a university. And so you would never, ever, ever get ethical okay to conduct such an experiment like that now. Because there has to be fully informed consent and you can't traumatize people in the course of experimenting on them, etc. There's very, very, very strict guidelines on this stuff now. Um, I, personally, I think they've gone a little too far, but I understand the points of, of what they're doing and why they're trying to protect people. And, and people should be protected, but it's also a little difficult to do real research on trauma if you can't induce some trauma. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to deal with as a researcher and as, a, as somebody who designs these things. So anyway, that's kind of uh, what happened there is it just kind of the emotions and, and, and oh my godness of what happened kind of took over and the science kind of slid over to the side for a little while. And that was Zimbardo's mistake, and it was a and it was a mistake on his part, and um, and he did not conduct that in, that experiment um, the way that he should have as a as a fully responsible researcher. So that's what I can say about that. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. April Terman, hope you and Melissa are doing well. I just wanted to ask what a natural clear and a past life clear are. I heard John Atak say he was a natural clear while telling his story, and Nora Crest said she was a past life clear. Or is it a pre-life clear? Anyway, thank you for all that you do and helping all of us make sense of all the world's nonsense. April, you're very welcome, and thanks for uh, your question and, and watching the show here. Um, a natural clear basically is somebody who has always been clear. They have never, ever had in all the trillania of experience, they never had a reactive mind. And um, yeah, pretty rare, pretty rare circumstance. Um, this was something that kind of came and went in the late 70s or 80s as a, as a thing. And there were some people who were able to, to attest to this, but... Um, but the natural clear thing was, was a little flash in the pan in that nobody really gets away with it now. And then past life clear is simply somebody who went clear in their last life. Hubbard claimed that he was making clears as early as 1947 or 48. 
Um, and when he was experimenting with Dianetics, he said, right, which is all just a bunch of crap. But that's what he claimed. And so um, there were people in Scientology who would hear about this and then in their auditing discover they were a past life clear audited by L. Ron Hubbard back in the day, et cetera. So that's kind of how that works. And there you go. Jonathan Perry. Isn't it illegal to transport minors across state lines without their parents or even out of the country? Doesn't this happen in the Sea Org? Jonathan, as far as I know, it is not illegal in any way to take people over state lines or even take them out of the country so long as you have the parent's permission and you have a guardian in place of some kind who's going to be responsible for that minor. Now, I'm not a legal authority on that. I could be completely wrong, but that's my understanding of things, and I didn't bother to look it up. Um, the guardianship thing is absolutely without question true, though. I mean, we had, I was a guardian in the Sea Org. And what you do is when they recruit a minor into the Sea Org, they get somebody in the Sea Org to act as the guardian, sign off the papers. They're the, the, the person who oversees the, the minor. Um, but of course they don't. I mean, there really isn't any oversight or, or direction or anything. When I, the, the person I was a guardian for worked over an external comm, I barely talked to her. You know, she was around sometimes. And I, you know, we really, we had a relationship, but really not, not father daughter or anything. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. You know, I, I barely knew her. So, um, you know, so that's kind of, it's all just to sort of, you know, check off the boxes of legal liability for the church. That's really what they're trying to do. The church is going to do what the church wants to do, but they're going to try to make it look and sound perfectly legal and legit. And they'll follow the laws to the degree they have to so they don't get in trouble. And that's kind of how that works. Travis, if you had the opportunity, would you go skydiving? Never. I will never, ever, ever go skydiving. My mom did. I won't. <laughs> okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and inviting me into your home and watching this show. I really, really appreciate it. And I would very much appreciate it if you would like and share this video around on the interwebs and share my channel. I want to continue growing it, and I want to continue getting my educational efforts out there to a wider and wider audience. So please help me do that. And of course, if you are enjoying this channel and enjoying my show, consider supporting me through Patreon because it is you guys, 100% you guys who keep this channel going and keep this show going. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.